Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 42 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're asking the question, why do Christians argue so much? Why are there so many denominations? So I do want to say greetings to all of the peace-loving and unity-seeking listeners to the Bible Reading Podcast. You guys are the best. And if you are the kind of Christian who likes nothing better than a good argument with other Christians, who takes joy out of showing simpletons how wrong they are, and you can't push away from the keyboard when you find somebody that's wrong on the internet, well, maybe this episode is for you. Cheers. Today's Bible readings begin with Genesis chapter 44, where Joseph initiates his reunion with his treacherous brothers by implicating the youngest in a theft. Job chapter 10 continues Job's gut-wrenching speech from yesterday, containing some of the most honest and most unfiltered commentary in the entire Bible. It's honestly It's gut-wrenching just to read it out loud. Every time I read what Job is saying, it's just cutting me to the heart. And obviously, I didn't experience what he's experiencing, but man, it's so deep. For those who do not believe a follower of God can be depressed, then Job has something pretty strong to say about that. And certainly to Elijah, Moses, David, many, many other heroes of the faith in the Bible. I mean, just think about Job today, what we're going to read. Verse eight, chapter 10, verse 18, he's talking to God and he says, Why did you bring me out of the womb? I should have died and never been seen. I wish I had never existed, but had been carried from the womb to the grave. Are my days not few? Stop it. Leave me alone so that I can smile a little before I go to a land of darkness and gloom, never to return. It is a land of blackness like the deepest darkness, gloomy and chaotic, where even the light is like the darkness such honest and raw, unfiltered despair is there. And in expressing it, he's not sinning because God doesn't charge Job with sin. Now, he's not right. There is more hope than darkness darkness and gloom because of what Jesus has done. And I believe what Jesus did is can be made uh, salvific or saving for even the Old Testament saints. They can be saved through faith, as the New Testament is going to tell us. Now, Mark 14 sees Jesus leading the Last Supper and experiencing painful betrayal, followed by his arrest at the behest of the Sanhedrin. It also has Mark's retelling of the adoration and worship of Mary of Bethany, which was the subject of episode number 26 of this podcast, one of my favorite episodes so far, because Mary of Bethany is one of my heroes in the Bible. But our focus passage for today, and actually tomorrow too, is going to be in Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15. And these passages are really centered on the issue of unity and agreement and being in one mind and one voice together. And there and there's in there a sincere and deep and binding call to avoid arguments and conflict among followers of Christ. So let's dig into Romans 14 and just pay attention to all the practical advice that Paul gives us here. Romans 14 verse 1, accept anyone who is
is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats meat must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge one another's uh, another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he may be both Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it's wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. Man, what a what a powerful passage here. And by the way, if you're a vegetarian or a meat eater, what is the what does the Bible say to us here? It says, hey, it's fine. Either way is fine. Don't there's no argument about it in Christianity. You can't, as a vegetarian, look down your nose at a meat eater, and you can't, as a meat eater, look down your nose at a vegetarian. It's not your job to judge what somebody else is eat somebody else eats that's in the body of Christ. Now, we Christians can be known by many to be argumentative and divisive, which is really, really heartbreaking considering Jesus' prayer for oneness in John 17, verse 20. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. You see that connection there? When we're one, the world will believe that the Father sent Jesus. 
Verse 22, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When Jesus' followers are not in the kind of unity that he prayed for, then we are muffling the communication of the good news to the world and are missing out on an opportunity to let the world know that Jesus was sent by the Father. I believe this one dynamic really massively hinders our evangelism in the United States and other parts of the Western world, where non-believers can look around and see hundreds, if not thousands, of denominations and off at Christians and all their little disagreements, which seem very petty in their eyes. Christian unity is essential to gospel fruitfulness, according to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. And I love Romans 14 because it gives Christians practical and powerful commands and advice on finding unity. Consider these verses. Verse 1, accept anyone who is weak in faith. Don't argue about disputed matters. You hear that? Don't argue about them. Verse 4, who are you to judge another's household servant? Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you despise your brother or sister? Verse 13, therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Verse 13 again, instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Verse 19, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. We're not only commanded to be people of unity, we're supposed to pursue it. Like, go after it. In fact, another passage in the Bible says that we are to seek peace and pursue it. Verse 21, it's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Verse 21 again, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. So there's Christians out there that are like really, really strong teetotalers and and have different opinions about food and drink. And there's other Christians who just are out there trumpeting their liberty to drink whatever. And I think we forget what Romans 14 is saying to us. We're not really supposed to talk about those sorts of things. We're certainly not supposed to debate them. Consider what it would be like if Christians followed just the above commands in Romans 14. I mean, not even the rest of the Bible's commands on unity and oneness, and there's like hundreds of them, but just just the, the, the commands in Romans 14. No arguments about disputed matters, no judging, pursuing what promotes peace, no stumbling blocks or pitfalls, keeping your opinion to yourself on issues that the Bible is not clear on. Wouldn't that be awesome? If we lived like that, that would be incredible. It would be incredible if I lived like that. Consider these awesome words from friend of the show, Pastor Richard Baxter, who was an English Puritan from the 1600s. This is what he says. Again, this is like 400 years ago. He says, observe how we sin against the sad experience of the church in all ages by laying our religion or unity upon these smaller or unnecessary things. What has distracted the church so much as contendings or quarrels about their ceremonies and orders and precedency and superiority? In other words, why are we fighting about these little things and why are we so distracted about quarrels about how our church service is laid out? What wisdom is that? 
How many Christians, churches, and denominations have divided over small or unnecessary things? How many Christians and churches have been distracted by arguments over church service orders and other Christian ceremonies? Tell you something. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how to do church. At least, if it's in there, I haven't found it. And I've tried and tried and tried. And yet Christians just dispute about this so often. How many Christian groups have splintered over biblically unclear issues like eschatology or the last days or the issue of alcohol or the issue of how you should dress or raising hands in worship or dancing in worship or whatever kind of music style you have or whether you should just sing psalms or whether you can sing songs that were written and based on the Bible or the exact nature of communion and more. You might have a firm and clear opinion on some of those matters, and I guarantee you I do too, but we have multiple commands and mandates in Scripture to be in unity, to be one in thought and mind, to be at peace with each other, and we must stop ignoring those commands in the church. I love what Pastor Mark Dever said about this topic in a recent sermon. It was actually on the last days, and uh, but but it's it's so much more than that. So I'm going to read you just a little bitty clip from it. But I do want to encourage you come and read the clip for yourself on BibleReadingPodcast.com. I actually got it off the Gospel Coalition website, but the link is uh, is kind of long, and you can really find it on the show notes for today's episode, number 42 of the BibleReadingPodcast.com. And this is what Pastor Mark Dever said. I think that millennial views or views about how the last days are going to unfold. I think that millennial views need not be among those doctrines that divide us. I am suggesting that what you believe about the millennium, how you interpret these thousand years mentioned in scripture, is not something necessary for us to agree upon in order to have a congregation together. The Lord Jesus prayed in John 17, 21, that we Christians might be one. Of course, all true Christians are one in that we have his spirit, we share his spirit, we desire to live out that unity. But that unity is supposed to be evident as a testimony to the world around us. Therefore, I conclude that we should end our cooperations together with other Christians, whether nearly in a congregation or more at length in working together in missions and church planning and evangelism and building up the ministry only We should end our cooperations only with the greatest of care, lest we tear the body of Christ for whose unity he's prayed and given himself. Therefore, I conclude, says Dever, that it is sin to divide the body of Christ, to divide the body that he prayed would be united. Therefore, for us to conclude that we must agree upon a certain view of alcohol, or a certain view of schooling, or a certain view of meat sacrificed to idols, or a certain view of the millennium in order to have fellowship together is, I think, not only unnecessary for the body of Christ, but it is therefore both unwarranted and therefore condemned by Scripture. So if you're a pastor, says Mark Dever, and you're listening to me, you understand me correctly if you think I'm saying you are in sin if you lead your congregation to have a statement of faith that requires a particular millennial view. I do not understand why that has to be a matter of uniformity in order to have Christian unity in a local congregation. 
Man, I want to stand up and applaud Pastor Mark Dever on that. I wholeheartedly agree with him, and I would count it a privilege to be in church with that man, to serve alongside him, to be on staff under him, or anything like that, even though he and I disagree on several of the issues mentioned above, including the millennium. I'm a historic uh, pre-tribulation guy, and he is... A, I'm sorry, I'm a historic premillennial guy, and he is an amillennial guy. And, and who, who cares? I, I mean, it's important, I guess, but not the kind of important thing that we can break fellowship over. These disagreements pale in comparison to the dozens of New Testament commands and urgings to pursue unity. Note, it's very, very clear. I'm not suggesting that we must never contend for the faith or for clear biblical truth and commands. There are things in the Bible that are crystal clear about how we live our lives, about what kind of sex is allowed. We'll talk about those very soon. Uh, uh, All of this kind of stuff. There are things that are crystal clear in the Bible. We contend for those because otherwise we're compromising and disobeying the Word of God. But there are all other things, some of the things we've already mentioned today, that the Bible does not clearly tell us how to uh, how, how exactly to go. And all of us have opinions on those things, but we don't divide on those things. But on the other hand, we must not compromise on that which the Bible clearly commands. There is indeed a time to stand up and contend for clearly revealed biblical truths, but we must avoid contending on doubtful issues and we must seek the guidance of the Word of God and His Spirit to walk in the kind of wisdom that it takes to know the difference between those two things. I think Jared C. Wilson captures the real crucial balance and wisdom required to do that quite well on this issue, so I'm going to close out this part with some words from him. He says this, We live in crucial times for the church, especially in the West. There are skirmishes aplenty, opportunities every day to go to war with our neighbors, with our brethren, with every Twitter rando with an itchy keyboard finger. We are called to wage relentless war on our sin, Hebrews 4.12, and the spiritual powers of wickedness, Ephesians 6.12. But not every invitation to battle with flesh and blood ought to be accepted, and rarely should such invitations invitations be given. Those in Christian ministry ought to especially take this to heart. Fighting is sometimes necessary. Liking to fight is not. In fact, it is forbidden. Consider whether you are, in fact, with every caustic tweet you send, chipping away at your qualification for ministry. It is not manly to get up every morning thinking of the brethren as your enemies, not even the ones you disagree with on important matters. The Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome, says Second Timothy 2.24. Pastors are especially forbidden to be argumentative. 1 Timothy 3.3. And while the Lord's violent cleansing of the temple may offer some model of holy zeal worth emulating, he said an awful lot more directly about blessing those who hate, praying for those who persecute, and turning the other cheek. Those are direct orders. Nailed it, Jared C. Wilson. Just nailed it. We have got to get back to the mindset of seeking the unity that Romans 14 commands for us and that Jesus prayed that we would walk in. 
Consider that well, my friends. Genesis chapter 44, verse 1. Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag, along with silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Get up, pursue the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them. So they said to him, Why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found at the top of our bags. How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. The steward replied, What you have said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave, and the rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What is this you have done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? What can we say, my lord? Judah replied. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now, my lord, slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. But Judah approached him and said, My lord, please let your servant speak personally to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, My lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. This boy's brother is dead. He is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported to him the words of my Lord, but our father said, go again and buy us a little food. We told him we cannot go down unless our younger brother goes with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him again. If you also take this one from me, and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please, 
Let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Well, it would seem that uh, Judah has grown up quite a bit in the years since he sold his brother Joseph into slavery. Job chapter 10 verse 1. I am disgusted with my life. I will give vent to my complaint and speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. Let me know why you prosecute me. Is it good for you to oppress, to reject the work of your hands and favor the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a human sees? Are your days like those of a human or your years like those of a man that you look for my iniquity and search for my sin, even you, though you know that I am not wicked and that there is no one who can rescue from your power? Your hands shaped me and formed me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Please remember that you formed me like clay. Will you now return me to dust? Do not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese. You clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me together with bones and tendons. You gave me life and faithful love, and your care has guarded my life. Yet you concealed these thoughts in your heart. I know that this was your hidden plan. If I sin, you would notice and would not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. And even if I'm righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm filled with shame and I've drunk deeply of my affliction. If I am proud, you hunt me like a lion and again display your miraculous power against me. You produce new witnesses against me and multiply your anger toward me. Hardships assault me, wave after wave. Why did you bring me out of the womb? I should have died and have never been seen. I wish I had never existed, but had been carried from the womb to the grave. Are my days not few? Stop it. Leave me alone so that I can smile a little before I go to a land of darkness and gloom, never to return. It is a land of blackness like the deepest darkness, gloomy and chaotic, where even the light is like the darkness. Mark chapter 14 verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head, but some were expressing in indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? 
So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. They all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther and fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and told and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the high priests, the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a symbol. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to 
capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any, for many were giving false testimony about him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some, some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have to answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, Ah, you were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservants saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, ah, This man, he's one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them, since you are also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, Before the rooster cries twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Good day to you, my friends, and Godspeed.